Welcome to the first episode of Who Tells Your Story, a part of the Daddy Unscripted podcast on Osiris Media. My name is Tim Wheaton, and I am your host. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode, a new series, a new everything. And I am so excited about this new section of Daddy Unscripted. So, you know, we launched We're Here Alone Together kind of early on once the pandemic hit and everybody started living a different form of their life with whatever that meant at their home. And now that kind of opened up this bigger door that I happily walked through of having other types of guests, not just dads on the podcast. I got some really good feedback from people I talked about this in my last episode. If you didn't check that out, check out my Thanksgiving episode. But it made me think there are so many stories out there that are there to inspire all of us. And as much as being a dad means to me, and as much as I am tied to Daddy Unscripted still for very good reasons, I still think there are some things for us to learn, even as dads, from moms from non-parents, ways for us to be inspired and learn new and important things about how to live life, how to be better people, how to make good choices, and how to be inspired to do all of those things and more from people all over the world doing all kinds of different things, living all kinds of different lives. So once I started to kind of get a taste of that, it really allowed me to open my mind to the idea of making that even bigger. So this is the first episode of another series within the Daddy Unscripted scope that is called Who Tells Your Story? And like I said in my Thanksgiving episode, Lin-Manuel, do not come after me. All of you people do not come after me. I'm not trying to steal anything from your fabulous work, but... That resonated so much with me because there are so many stories that need to be told. And it's not about the who that tells your story. It's about the story being told. And it's about it being documented and having other people hear and learn and be inspired. So there are those people that I'm going to speak to and include in this series as part of the podcast as a whole that will be kicked off fantastically with the guest on this episode which I'm going to butcher the last name, Rebecca. I'm really sorry. I'm doing my best here. (laughs) And I've listened to it so many times from you saying it to try to nail it here. But my best is, my guest is Rebecca Gudeliftostisch. That's the best I have. And I always say her first name in a very English way. I say Rebecca, but Rebecca is the correct pronunciation of it in Icelandic. And before I get any further, let me do the whole business side of things. So let me remind you guys of an amazing podcast to join Osiris. Let me tell you, Osiris Media is the network that Daddy Unscripted is very proud to be a part of. They are continuing to just create more amazing podcasts for you guys to listen to. All these new things are coming out. And one of them that's coming out in January that I'm very excited about is this podcast by Maggie Rose, a beautiful songstress 
and let me just let her deliver the message to you herself. Hey there, this is Maggie Rose. I'm a singer, songwriter, and music lover based in East Nashville, Tennessee. And one of my favorite things to do here in Music City is just get out of the house and take a walk. And something I've come to enjoy is that even with the competition of the humming of traffic or live music spilling out of the bars and honky-tonks in our lovely city, I can always hear birds singing in the background. Just listen. We don't always notice them, but we should. I'd like to invite you to check out my new show, Salute the Songbird, on Osiris Media. On Salute the Songbird, I'll have candid, fun, sometimes deep and vulnerable conversations with the most fabulous and fascinating women on the scene in contemporary music. Some of my guests you will know, some I will have the privilege of introducing to you. Together, they're all at the heart and soul of our musical world and all fearlessly female. I'll be joined by guests such as hit songwriter and recording artist Rubia Monfu. The disease and the disease that we have in this country started stirring up undeniable things in me, and so I started to write about it. The incomparable folk rock star Nikki Bloom. To stay in this known world feels scarier than trying something new. And the legendary Nancy Wilson of Heart. We saw the Beatles. From that moment forward, it was like, must have guitars. So please, pay tribute and attention to the songbirds all around you and join me, Maggie Rose, for Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and that's just one of the things coming. There's so much coming in 2021 to find out more of that news, to find out more of the podcasts that are already out there. Go to OsirisPod.com and check all of that out. A reminder that Osiris is proudly partnered with Jambase. Go to Jambase.com to find what is out there on the musical horizon. Holy crap, things are happening. What is going to happen in 2021 live music-wise? Who knows? But Jambase will know, and you'll be able to find out everything there. So Jambase.com for that information. And let me just remind you, that Daddy Unscripted is very proud to be sponsored by Harry's. Harry's just came out with their sharpest blades ever. And unlike some other razor companies, they are not charging you more for their product improvements. Harry's new sharper blades are still as low as $2 each. You guys know me. Those of you who really know me, you know I hate shaving. Hate doing it. I've had to shave since I was in seventh grade, no joke, very unfortunate for me, and I hate doing it, can't stand shaving, but I unfortunately have to do it, and when I do it, I use Harry's. I've been using them ever since I was traveling for work quite some time ago and found their little travel pack, and it was perfect, so I can very honestly endorse Harry's to you guys and I don't feel like my nose is growing because I'm telling you the truth. So here is the deal. Remember I mentioned those sharpest blades that they've had ever? The new blades are so sharp that in a study with guys shaving four times a week, which makes me want to shudder, the guys reported that with Harry's new blades, their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. How do they deliver quality at such a low price? Let me tell you. Harry's owns a German factory that's been honing razor blades for 100 years. 
They source their steel from Sweden. They own the entire manufacturing process from R&D to the factory floor. And this allows them to keep their prices so low. And you can feel confident because they stand by a 100% quality guarantee on harrys.com. Their blades are still as convenient as ever, as you guys are all getting very used to getting things delivered to your homes. Blades are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription. Give Harry's Sharpest Blades Ever a try. Harry's has an amazing offer for listeners of Daddy Unscripted. New U.S. customers can redeem a Harry's trial set at harrys.com backslash daddy. You'll get a five-blade razor featuring their new sharper blades, a weighted handle, foaming shave gel with aloe, and a travel cover to protect your blade when you're on the go. Just go to harrys.com backslash daddy and redeem your trial offer today. Okay, and business done. So let me tell you a little bit about what led to this conversation and my history and background with Rebecca. I've been a fan of Rebecca since 2005, since I first discovered her on Flickr. Um, Many of you may not know this. I have a whole kind of side thing in photography. It's a big part of the reason why Umphreys McGee music is playing in all of my episodes, because I shot quite a few concerts and even some stuff um, on the side with the band. Thank you, Umphreys McGee. And I did a lot of concert photography. I also still do weddings and engagements and maternity and some work with models as well. And none of that would be in existence if I had not stumbled across on one day, one very fateful day in the middle of 2005, I was looking for a picture of something for some reason. And I went into the site called Flickr that was pretty big back then. And you have to think about 2005. This is pre-Facebook. This is, well, Facebook was out there, but for college students only. This is pre-Instagram. This is pre-social media at all. And Flickr was kind of this community for photographers at, at all levels. And I was looking for something and there was this photo of and shot by Rebecca of herself. And it was a long exposure shot that she had done. And I don't know if I'd ever really seen anything like it. And I went into her photo stream and started looking at more and more of her work. And it inspired me to want to try doing some of these things with photos. So I eventually did a lot of these things. I um, became part of this group on Flickr that we kind of touched on in this episode, the 365 group, which was you were doing a self-portrait every day for a year straight. And this is pre-selfie time. Like people did not have cell phones. You, This was not commonplace. And I actually went through the whole process. It got bigger and better as the year went on. Um, and, you know, at first I was shooting with a very small point and shoot, and then eventually I got an actual big boy camera, and then I was using a tripod. I was using a self-remote timer to shoot these things. I was doing all these elaborate setups. I was taking some stuff that I was seeing from other people that I loved and admired, um, one of them obviously being Rebecca and one of them being uh, a friend of mine, Paul Octavius. Shout out to Paul. 
um, and some other people. We would do some riffs and we would come up with these different categories and thoughts and people would all try their hand at a theme or something like that. But I very openly paid homage to Rebecca and some of her themes multiple times. And I ended up actually self-publishing a book of this series. But she went on to have some really great success with her photography. She does so many different other things um, in the visual arts world. She she draws, she paints, she um, was creating these amazing things, these elaborate things for her photography. And, you know, she was very well known not only for her landscape photography there in Iceland, but also for her self-portraiture and her other portraits that she was doing, as well as even, uh, I think there was an offshoot where she got fairly well known for her um, photography of horses out there. You know, Icelandic horses are a little bit different and they're so cute and almost furry. You would almost say they're furry, but... She also knits and makes amazing sweaters that are so awesome. Like if I was, if I was a rich man, yada, da, da, I would buy a, a, just a bunch of different sweaters of hers because they are so freaking cool. And they are like works of art, literally handmade works of art by her. And she just has done so many different things. And I think this year, 2021 coming up is going to end up seeing a, not a reinvention, but a rediscovery of her and her art and new things that she has to say and do and create. So I'm very excited to be talking to her about that and many other things. There's a lot in this conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. I do also have her welcoming people from Iceland to this episode. Let's listen to that. Þú ert að hlusta á Hver segir sögu þína? Þetta er hluti af Daddy Unscripted podcastinu á Osaris Media og ég býð velkomna alla hlustendur frá Íslandi sem kunna hafa rambað hingað inn. <laughs> I heard Daddy Unscripted and podcast. Uh, yeah, I, I, I translated the Who Tells Your Story part as well. This is the first of two parts of this first conversation. The first of two parts of what may end up being a few other parts, I would say, because there were some things that we didn't get to completely tackle that I would have liked to. And it's just so good. I'm so glad this conversation happened. And I'm excited for you guys to be here and to hear it. So with no further ado here is the first part of my conversation with Rebecca can you please say your last name in a good way and I'm going to give it my best to not butcher it all right are you ready I'm ready okay uh, my full name in Icelandic is pronounced Rebecca Okay. All right, everybody, we are here today. I'm beside myself with excitement. There's like a little ghost version of me that's to the right of me that's like jumping up and down. Super excited about who I am speaking with and who you are going to be able to uh, hear a lot of stories from and history about with Rebecca Gudlifstotish. 
which I said horribly. You can correct me. <laughs> well, I mean, except for the except for the literal ish at the end, which sounds oh, like yes. much like an sh. I mean, it ends on an r, but it, it's a hard sound to say for Americans. I mean, I I lived in America for seven years. I grew up having to listen to people try to say the whole thing, and it's just like I'm I'm so used to it. So you did a pretty good job, and I like how you did the uh, r at the front of my name. That's very. Good. I'm a. I'm a professional R roller. It was my <laughs> one claim to fame in Spanish class. Oh, nice! Because most Americans have a hard time with that. So, for some, it's always yeah. been so funny to weird to me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. I'm very happy to have you here. On uh, this is actually the flagship episode of Who Tells Your Story inside my little family of three different versions of Daddy Unscripted. So thank you for coming in with a bottle of champagne and breaking it across my bow. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm actually really I'm flattered to be the like the, the guest in the flagship episode. That sounds extremely impressive. Yeah, Very. that's another thing you can add to your resume. Uh-huh. I'm totally going to put that in. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the name of it, too. Who, who tells your story? I really like that. Um, I've been thinking so much about the whole storytelling thing lately. So. Um, very nice. Yeah, I'm hoping to fly under the radar far enough that uh, Lynn Manuel does not show up at my front door one day asking for me to cease and desist with using a line so famously in Hamilton, basically. For those of you listening now, you should go to daddyunscripted.com where there will be a um, written version of this episode, but the post before this talks about why uh who tells your story ever came to be and talks about how i kind of toiled through even a potential like complete rebranding of daddy unscripted and changing it and then i just decided i'm just gonna add another head to the um three-headed monster that it's now become so rebecca is i will say and i've said this many times before in different places but you are the reason that I ever, ever picked up a camera with intention other than just taking a picture of um, family members or friends or something. It was back in like 2005, and I don't remember why I was looking on Flickr, but I was looking for something. And I actually looked through your stream to make sure because I thought it might have been the floating Apple shot. Yeah that's so famous uh-huh. and uh, kind of became like your, I think your doorway or other people's doorway to your photography back in those days. Yeah. It was one of the bigger, bigger catalysts for that. Definitely. Which I don't know if, is it a thing where, you know, like, let's say I'm trying to think of a proper, the Eagles, the Eagles probably got sick of Hotel California at some point. Is, I think. <laughs> do you do you have is uh, is the floating apple your Hotel California or any of your images? Um, did they ever become a thing like that to you, yes. where you not resented them, but definitely? Uh, I think actually yeah. that that particular image would be the perfect example of that um, mm. because yeah. when I did it, there was like nothing special going on I was literally just playing around with the camera I'd had it for like three months and I I had become like sort of popular on there it was to the extent that I would post something and I would always get a lot of feedback 
which made it more fun to post something new. And I was in art school at the time. So I was just like playing around with this whole, just, just the whole digital camera thing. It was relatively new and really fun. And I was just like, I don't even remember how I got the idea of tossing up this apple and catching it in midair. Uh, and especially the idea of having it in front of my face. Uh, and because it's not Photoshop, it's just like I'm, I'm holding the camera and the, the apple is like tossed up so that it's floating between me and the camera. And then that's when I snap the picture. So I'm really kind of focused and determined on like getting it right. So my facial expression in that photo is like really kind of pissed off or like super focused. I mean, it's just, an, it's not a flattering picture of my face. I mean, it's just, let's just be honest. It's like, um, and having to look at that expression every time, it's like, I mean, yes, the, the, the photo looks good. It's like really eye catching and it looks photoshopped, like so insanely photoshopped. It's ridiculous. And so, yeah, I got really tired of that image being used in like, like the wall street journal used that image. Gosh. And I'm like, of all the pictures I have <laughs> that I love that are super, super flattering that make me look like awesome. They chose this picture with me, my face kind of scrunched up, you know, like wearing this really unremarkable olive green hoodie. And I, because I was just like, I just like jumped outside my house and just snapped a few pictures. That's what I was doing. This is not like the photo shoots that I did a few years later where I really put a lot of work into how I looked and, you know, it was just playing around. So I find it, um, I find it terribly amusing actually that, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, that ends up being like my flagship image or something um, for the whole flicker flicker years. Yeah. But I, I still kind of love it. I, I won't, I'm not going to lie. It's very dear to my heart. <laughs> it's funny too. It's like when I started doing work for my nine to five job and was doing like social media and stuff mm -hmm. and somebody came up to me and said, you've got to make a viral video. Yeah. And I said, that that doesn't happen. <laughs> you don't make a video and say, this is going viral. Like it's just something that kind of organically happens. And yeah, yeah that in a world pre-viral that mm -hmm. your floating apple was extremely viral. Yeah, that's true. Uh, within this sort of um, the whole Flickr community, mostly. Yeah. But it was enough to catch the eye of certain people, which helped to, you know, make me a little bit more known outside of Flickr. Uh, that image mm -hmm. and a few and a few others from also from two, 2005. So you were following me from like the, the same year I started using Flickr. That's the because I started using it in like May 2005. Okay. Yeah, I was I think what what I saw when I looked back that was the set that originally caught my eye were the ones where you were laying down and it was maybe um, it was like there were two of you laying down laying down hmm. i will say i think the frames were horizontal um yeah that was like when i was uh i just started uh just gotten into art school and i was always like when i was going to bed in the evenings there's just like a lamp next to my bed and i just had the camera and i was like playing around with long uh slightly longer um shutter speeds like not exactly long exposures as one came to think of them later but like maybe just a couple of seconds and i would be playing around with like turning the light on for like a split second and then turning my head and turning the light back on like that kind of double exposure in camera, just using lights. And yeah, I, I did a few versions of those. Um, but one was like really ghostly where I was like, I was just lying on my pillow and there was like a hand reaching out towards my head, like a ghost, you know, playing around with, Yeah. which was, I think I called it, um, are we ever really alone? 
Yeah. <laughs> these really, really dramatic, really cheesy titles often that seemed very fitting at the time. I think it's kind of kind of adorable. But um, I was so excited about everything, about just everything about cameras and photography. Just uh, was it was just the most exciting thing to me that I had ever experienced in my life. So, and I would just like be taking photos every day, like all the time, just constantly playing around. There was so much experimental, like playfulness going on because I, I wasn't taking it seriously yet. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the great thing about when you're starting out with something and it, you don't know why you're doing it, and you're just literally just just having fun with it. And I often think that's why I actually became somewhat um, popular on there is because there was so much just like I was just throwing everything I did out there. You know, I was editing it, obviously, and being a little selective and making sure that I only presented something that looked uh, appealing to the eye and interesting in some way. But I wasn't afraid to just do weird things and, you know, present that to the the whole Flickr community and, and see where that would go. Uh, which is like, I think that was one of the reasons I actually, things kind of took off for me is I, I wasn't afraid to be weird, just be myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the people that I think for me, the people that I enjoy following like on YouTube or, or whatever, I mean, those are people who are just like, they're just genuinely being themselves. They're not like trying to be like everyone else. You know what I mean? The the sense of originality is, is what appeals to me. That was definitely infectious at that time. Let's bookmark that. Because I'm going to get to how uh, that even kind of evolved for you. But let's go, let's go further back. This is where I need a wind chime sound effect or something. Whisking you back to pre-you even. And how far back does your family heritage go in Iceland? And tell me what you can about that history. Oh, that's a... Uh... That's a big question. Um, I'm not like, um, I, I cannot go very far back and actually like know the names of my ancestors, you know, um, like, I mm-hmm. mean, my, my parents, uh, they were both uh, the youngest of their siblings. Um, so their parents were like um, in their forties when they had them. Hmm. So when I was, and I was the youngest of my siblings. So like my grandparents were all in their seventies when I was born. Mm. And I, you know, I spent the first four years of my life in Iceland. Uh, and I don't remember my um, grandmothers almost at all. Uh, they were uh, my mom's uh, mom. She or her parents, they lived in a town like up in North Iceland, really like eight hour drive away. And, you know, I have no memory of, of knowing like my paternal grandmother died when I was two. So I don't remember her at all. Um, and then I moved to the States. Um, we moved to Florida when I'm four. And so I, I don't remember anything from my, my, my two grandfathers and my maternal grandmother before the age of four. Uh, we spent a summer in, in Iceland in 86. We came here and spent three months. And I remember visiting my, uh, that's the only memory I have of my maternal grandmother is from that summer. And it's very, very vague. I I guess I was eight eight at the time. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, so I don't really, I mean, I know a lot about their, I know that all of these people, these, all my grandparents, they had really difficult childhoods, like really, really, really difficult because uh, life in Iceland was pretty much in the dark ages uh, until around, 
uh, World War II, basically. Hmm. Uh, You know, we had not kind of arrived in modern times here in Iceland until uh, uh, there was the first, there was a British occupation and then uh, American occupation where, you know, the military first from the, from Britain and then from the U S came here to Iceland and basically brought with it the future, you know? Um, so before that, you know, everyone who was born like, um, in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, they had a pretty, pretty terrible life. Uh, just, you know, putting it quite simply. Uh, and I know that my, my paternal grandfather, he was uh, very lucky to have survived past the age of like two weeks he was found like in his parents had been like teenagers and um, he was just like completely not being cared for when some, some woman who came to came by the farm where he was born uh, basically kind of found him and rescued him you wow. know? Uh, and she raised him as his own. And um, I'm thinking like, if she hadn't done that, I wouldn't exist. You know, my, my, my grandfather <laughs> was just this crying two two week old baby that, you know, <laughs> was just lucky to have survived, you know? Um, wow. And that was what he's born in. All these people are born in around 1908, 09. Uh, you know? mm-hmm. And that's just like, that's just two generations back for me. Uh, so I can't really go into anything like before that time. Um, just not, not, it's not as, I don't know enough about it to be able to talk about it. But uh, I know that uh, my, my mom, uh, she had a very difficult childhood. Uh, she lived in this uh, this tiny town in in North Iceland. It's called Husavik. It's actually the town that features most in this Eurovision movie that came out this year. And uh, she left home at the age of sixteen to go to like um uh, like this school for 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 girls where they learn everything about being a homemaker. You know, just learning how to sew, how to cook, and how to be a homemaker, which is good because she she has taught me everything somehow she knows how to do everything Mm -hmm. like also she she does carpentry and you know my mom is just really badass she's just like the most badass person i know um and she would just like really be kind of embarrassed hearing me say that and she would try to like like, no 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 you know i'm nothing special but i mean she really is (laughs) and i am just absolutely gonna admit that uh she's like my my biggest inspiration um, because she's just so strong. I mean, she, she left, left her home, uh, like she had an older brother and an older sister who she didn't really get along with mm-hmm. her, her mother, uh, suffered from like really serious depression. Um, uh, she was like, she was getting like shock therapy treatments, mm. you know, in, in the fifties. <laughs> and it's like, which is just like a scary thinking about that is just almost scary to me to think what her life must have been. Yes. She was like really art. She was really artistic. My grandmother. Um, really talented, but she just like, she just was so sad. And, um, so my mom did not have a good, like this really warm connection with her parents. Um, and she had a younger brother. She was actually not the youngest. She did have a younger brother who uh, was born with down syndrome mm. and he died at the age of six, oh, gosh. uh, which was really traumatizing for her because she basically, her job was to really, you know, care for him. She would, you know, take him outside for walks and people made fun of him. And it was just like her whole, just growing up, I always just see it as this like really difficult thing that really forced her to become like really strong and just have this really kind of, you know, just, uh, she doesn't let anything get to her. Uh, she doesn't complain. And, um, 
you know, it's thankfully people don't have to do that these days. You're actually allowed to talk about your feelings and ask for help if you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's just not how it was in, in those days. And so she leaves home at 16, goes to this boarding school, learns everything about being a great homemaker. And then she just starts living on her own in an apartment somewhere in downtown Reykjavik uh, at the age of 19. And she gets to know my dad around that time. Um, he's, uh, he's, he is the youngest of four siblings. Uh, my parents are both born in 1949 hmm. and my dad, um, he was in a band and <laughs> he was like, he played keyboards in, uh, like, a it was like a Beatles cover band called <laughs> Saxon. <laughs> awesome. And, you know, I just, I love it. Um, and there was like a dance at my mom's school and he, his band was playing and that's when she and him first saw each other. Um, and she was just like, she only had eyes for the keyboard player. (laughs) And, um, but that was like a year before they started dating. Um, and then they like, uh, in 1971, my sister was born and, uh, they, uh, my dad is like, um, he's like a bit of a genius. He's like, uh, his whole school history is like really impressive. I, I just, I just learned that recently. He was like, mm. just kind of, I decided to ask him about it and realized I never had. And he's just like, my mom went and brought all these news clippings. There were like these interviews with my dad because he was like, he was the first person to get into the university of Iceland without having first gone through the preliminary, like the normal, like two years of some other school, like because he was so smart that he like was allowed to kind of skip and go directly to, to university. Um, so wow. I'm like, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to explain all that in English because the, the names of the schools and, and the different levels are, are slightly different here in Iceland. But basically he was just like really, really, really smart and uh, was studying. Um, he ended up and studying electrical engineering, um, but he got like um I mean, they went to Sweden. They lived in Sweden someone, sometime in the early 70s when my sister was very little. And they spent like uh, half a year in Philadelphia in like 1976. And then in 1977, uh, that's when my brother is born. Uh, and then 15 months later, I come around in May 1978. So they had kind of moved around a bit um, before I was born. And then when I'm uh, four years old, uh, my dad has the opportunity. He gets a Fulbright scholarship to study in the States mm. if he, if he wants to. And he decides to go for his master's degree in, uh, electrical engineering. And that's why we ended up in Florida. You know, it was like a really a huge step for them. And, and people were like, no, you can't just do that. You have a family and little kids and you just go to Florida, you know? So it's a huge decision for them. Yeah. My first memories, uh, I don't really have any memories from Iceland before, you know, before the age of four. Uh, and we end up in Gainesville, Florida in 1982. And I'm so grateful that we did that because I wouldn't be talking to you now if I had not lived in the States as a kid. I'm absolutely certain of that mm-hmm. because it, um, you know, gave me a, it really kind of opened like the horizon a little bit more for, for me growing up because I, I grew up around people of all races and um, everyone was just different. And that was very normal to me. And I was in a school that had like the, like the more kind of lower class kids and the rich kids and us, you know, like me, I was, we were just living in this like very 
I was just used to everyone, all these different people being, being together and getting, getting along. And, you know, just like if I had just been in Iceland, it would have been like literally every single person around me would have looked exactly like me. Like everyone was Caucasian um, mm. back then. And it's like the whitest, it was like the whitest country in the world, I think probably. <laughs> um, so I, um, I was put in like a gifted program um, at the age of six. I was, I remember someone handed me a, 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 some pages and told me to like do some math problems. And it was like, you know, probably kind of advanced for a six year old. And I just did that. And then I was like put in this program where I, basically all my, my science classes and my math classes were taught with a different teacher with a, there's like a, a group of kids that got to go to another uh, part of the school and, and just had, I just got like a really fun education. I would say I was like, I was really fortunate that I was in the school in, I mean, this was a university town um, and it was like a really good school and I got some really just great teachers. And um, so I feel like I, I really benefited from, from, you know, growing up in a different country and being like, um, because that made me like bilingual, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think I, I think I picked the English up in like two, three weeks, you know, because like when kids are under the age of six, they somehow just absorb languages. You don't even have to teach it. It just happens almost organically. Yeah. And, uh, so me and my brother who was just 15 months older than me. He, we, we just completely learned English. Like it was like so easy for us. And while my sister who was 11, she really struggled uh, having to actually learn it. And she had more of an accent and my mom never got it. I mean, she obviously understands it. She can read it and listen to it, but she never got the hang of speaking English with like an, ac uh, like an American accent. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, not that that matters necessarily, but for me personally, I think uh, I'm really glad that I'm able to switch between the two languages like flawlessly for the most part, um, even though I tend to forget a few words in English once in a while, if, if it's about some sort of like uh, subject that I'm not always talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that has, uh, I mean, because that that's made it easier for me to uh, much, much later in my life to use the internet to connect with people outside of Iceland and get a, lot of, a larger audience for what I was doing because I was able to communicate uh, so easily in English. Um, so I, I'm really, really glad that my parents decided to, just, you know, kind of take that leap of faith and, and just go for it. And um, so we ended up being there instead of two years, like was originally planned. He was just going to get his master's. He ended up staying seven years and getting his uh, PhD as well. Oh, wow. So that's why we were there for um, from 82 to 1989. I'm going to stop and let you ask me something before I just like completely just I could talk and talk and talk and talk. You know, just <laughs> you're on the right medium for it because mm -hmm. this is a talking thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, if 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 we were doing this with video, like we would maybe have a dance break at this point or whatever. <laughs> um, all of that is so interesting and so crazy. Like thinking about, I mean, you think about people making moves from, say. America to Canada or America to the UK or something like that. But thinking about the reverse kind of move from Iceland where they have a completely different, I mean, did your, did your dad speak any English at this point? Oh, um, he must have because you'd, he'd already been to Philadelphia and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, English was is taught in schools and was also that was also done then and has been done for a very long time. So um, okay, 
everyone in Iceland, like, I mean, today it's not really com- comparable. Everyone in Iceland speaks pretty pretty good English, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily with the whole American or, or British accent or anything, but uh, you'll, you'll never find anyone in Iceland who won't understand you if you speak English because it's taught in school. Um, mm. But there was not as much like uh, English speaking television material back then in Iceland. And honestly, I think uh, around that time, early 80s, I think things were just like still had not caught up quite with like the, just culturally Iceland was really far behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot describe to you the shock of moving back to Iceland at the age of almost 11. I was a popular kid in Florida. Mm-hmm. I had a small group of close friends that I always hung out with after school and we were just really close. And I was kind of a person that my classmates tended to come to for advice. They would, I was generally kind of looked up to actually. Um, and I, I was like nice to people. I was just like, uh, just a well-rounded, nice kid. And I made really good grades and, you know, I had obviously been given this kind of idea that I was special by putting me in a gifted kind of program. This is something mm-hmm. I think about a lot, you know, it's like, is that a good thing necessarily, or can it be you know, problematic <laughs> later in life? Like when you tell someone you know, you're special, you know, that yeah. hard to deal with later. And it definitely had an impact on me later when I got a little bit older. So I go from that being like, just like pretty having a just really great childhood actually. And then I moved to Iceland and I'm so excited about leaving that I'm saying to my friends, like, well, I'm leaving soon. I can't wait. (laughs) Like, I mean, such, I was being such an asshole to my friends because they were like, okay, well, we're kind of going to miss you, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And obviously I was going to miss them, but I think maybe part of it was like, I was trying to make it easier to leave by telling myself that I really wanted to go. Uh, And part of me definitely did kind of have this uh, idea of Iceland as this like perfect place that everything was wonderful. I don't Mm -hmm. don't know why exactly, because, you know, I didn't have any like (laughs) experience living there Um, aside from one summer in 86. Uh, but anyway, I get here, and as soon as I start school, I realize that this is not going to be fun. Uh, I was just like, oh, my God, what the – what even is this? <laughs> it was like I was – I felt like I was like if, – if you imagine like – um like that show with Paris Hilton and her friend where they were like sent oh. to the – to the farm mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything's really backwards. Um, it wasn't like it exactly like that, but you know, yeah. that kind of gives you the idea of how I felt because I was just like, Oh my, are you kidding me? I mean, like my, I had like, I was like way ahead with like math and stuff. And I had just like, mm, everything was just so people's horizons were just really closed. There was no mm-hmm. internet and people just interacted with each other. And, it was a tiny little country and I was in, in this small town and um, almost like, so almost like from day one, I was just like, Nope, I don't like it. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm going to just make this as hard for myself as I can. And for my parents, I was just like, I resented them for bringing me home after having been like super excited about going. Yeah. Um, I, it just, I did not fit in. That is the bottom line. I did not fit in. Uh, even remotely. Uh, my parents had been really smart about having me and my brother do Icelandic lessons over the summer, but learning Icelandic from a book and your parents is not the same as growing up with the slang of your uh, 
peers, obviously. Mm -hmm. So there were so many things that they were saying and joking, and I just didn't understand what they meant. I was like, what? I mean, I understand the words, but I don't understand the context. And is that like, was that joke like, were they making fun of me or are they laughing with me? It was so much like confusion, which was frustrating to me because I was, I mean, I was, I was a very intelligent kid. I mean, that's mm-hmm. no, that's just how it was. Um, and I was very self-aware and uh, I just, I remember feeling like, like, oh, this sucks. I, I don't understand. This is just, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a group of this. This is not, these are not my people. <laughs> I guess you could, mm-hmm. because obviously as soon as I realized what I had had when I was in Florida with my close friends and everyone just kind of liking me and all of a sudden being in this situation where I was just like the odd one out that had a, had a very uh, negative effect on my, my psyche basically. And I became pretty depressed, uh, like from mm-hmm. a very early age, uh, from like age 13 around, yeah, around that age, I really started to feel <clears throat> really, really terrible about my life. And, uh, me and my brother were, he was my closest friend basically. And we would like, we were like huge nerds and we only spoke English, uh, amongst ourselves at home because we mm. were like super, super weird. And also because I just really, I really missed being able wanted to, to hold on it. to that. Yeah. Yes. And I think I mean, probably my older sister was always rolling her eyes at it because she thought it was stupid. And she thought she, she and I, um, we, we were not friends. We really didn't get along, uh, hmm. for, for a brief period, like, uh, in like right in my pre-adolescence and throughout my teenage years, we just kind of hated each other even mm-hmm. though we loved each other, but we just like, we got on each other's nerves, like, or yeah. mostly it was me getting on her nerves, you know, because I was a younger one. I always kind of looked up to her, but she just like, she couldn't stand me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just gonna, she, I think she would, you know, freely admit that to this day. My brother and I were really close and we were just like, um, you know, I didn't socialize with my classmates. I didn't have friends that I hung out with. I just, you know, I, uh, when I was at school, I was like, I had always like a, like a sketch pad with me and I would draw. And that was actually, I think what saved me from becoming like, like the outcast that people made outright like fun of, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that I was like really good at drawing elevated me a little bit. People had like a certain respect for that. Uh, you know, I was still obviously the weirdo who had spent her childhood in Florida and mm-hmm. was just, like not fitting in, but people respected that I could draw. And, um, I think that was actually a really important, uh, thing for me. Um, and my, my interest in art had already started at that age. I was like really fascinated with, um, surrealism and hyper-realist painters and stuff like that from like, you know, before the age of like 14. Mm. And I had started drawing from photos, uh, I think around 14, that was when I started becoming like really good at that. So I think that was kind of what kept me going through this very difficult period uh, of my school years where I was just like, I was miserable. I didn't want to go to school. I felt bad there. And I was just like so shy and just closed off and didn't talk to anyone. I would sometimes go an entire day without opening my mouth, Mm. Um, which is amazing because I am, my natural state is a person that talks a lot. (laughs) You know, Uh, I love talking. So being able to just like not say a word, I think I was like in some sort of like, I was, it was, it was like I was protesting, you know, it's like, I'm just gonna, I wasn't even trying to, you know, make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and it, 
reached a point of um, like uh, in in ninth grade, I I think I, I set a record for the most uh, classes missed over the semester. It was like and and I mean when I think about it now, um, I felt like that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you know, in my rebellious state of mind. That was not something I was like shocked about. I was like, yeah, I'm obviously trying to get away with not coming to school as much as I can, you know, but somewhat paradoxically, I was like making sure to make like really good grades because hmm. I was going to prove to the school system that I didn't need them. You know, they were, I did not necessarily have to be at school in order to learn. That was just like kind of mm-hmm. the point I was getting across because I, I made sure that I did all the schoolwork and I had always like me and like one other person were always at the top of the class in every, every subject. This was just a really, really terrible, you know, not pleasant time in my life. Um, and it had a huge effect on my self-esteem. Uh, basically I, uh, boys were not interested in me. Um, but I had like secret crushes on everyone. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I was just like, and also I wasn't getting along with a girl. I, it's not that they were mean to me. It was more like I isolated myself so much like that they didn't even know how to try to include me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did actually a couple of times. I remember uh, because there were some really, really, really sweet girls in my class and they actually did make an effort to include me. And I did go to a few birthday parties and stuff like that. And, but it was just like, I, at the time I, I don't think anyone really understood why I was such a difficult uh, teenager or mm-hmm. you know, what I have I've actually made an astounding realization early this year uh, that kind of explains all that, which um, I'm just going to like mention now. Uh, I'm most likely on the autism spectrum. And that is something that I did not realize until I coincidentally watched a documentary, uh, an Icelandic documentary made just a couple years ago about just like interviews with adult women who had, for some reason, gone through their whole lives never fitting in and, you know, uh, exhibiting non-typical traits, uh, especially having to do with, you know, communicating with other people and, and um, social stuff and like that. And I was just like, uh, Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Light bulb. This actually it was my parents who watched it first, and my mom calls me and is like, "You have to see this. Hmm. I, just watch it and tell me if if uh, I think she actually did use the light bulb thing. Just tell me if a light bulb goes off in your head as well." And I just watched it, and I remember I just I was like crying through mm-hmm. half of it because I was relating so hard to these women. Mm-hmm. And some of them were like uh, around my age. Uh, these were, um, I think the oldest one was like in her 60s when she was finally diagnosed. And these were all, uh, these are not like the, the typical uh, autistic behaviors. That's something like when I was a teenager, that's, um, what was that? I think 1989, the movie Rain Man came out. Yeah. And that yeah. was the first thing you, first first time autism was like in any kind of discussion and 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 it was always just like that that whole word was just related to like um this kind of idiot savant or people who are like super like geniuses with numbers but weren't able to communicate and and obviously that's not something i relate to in any way uh so i've never i've gone through my entire adult life being diagnosed with one uh mental illness after another 
Hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden I realized that this whole thing is like an umbrella over the whole thing. It just explains all of it. And this was, I haven't like gone through the process of getting a, a, an official diagnosis or anything. And honestly, I don't really feel like I necessarily have to. This is just something mm-hmm. that for, for me, it just helped me see myself and understand myself. Um, especially because my, my parents also, and my older sister, um, I think my older brother ended up seeing it too. And he was also like, yep, <laughs> just all of them like, yep, that explains it. That, that she's, she's mm-hmm. always been really fucking weird. <laughs> just like, <laughs> didn't really know why. <laughs> uh. So that was um, interesting to go back and remember all these little little instances from my teenagers where I was just doing things that were just so bizarre and unusual mm-hmm. and people didn't know how to respond to it. And my teachers and my parents were all just like, oh, can you just can you just stop? You know, why can't mm-hmm. you just be normal? Basically, that was kind mm-hmm. of the thing. Why can't you just be normal? And the answer is because I'm not. I'm just not <laughs> a neurotypical person. Mm-hmm. And I, I love being able to just say that and just embrace it because that's the reason I'm an artist, you know, it's the reason for having all these, like being really passionate about things that not everyone is passionate about and um, having the need to, to, you know, follow through on that and do something with it, not just, you know, and, and so I think that's just like a wonderful thing to finally figure out and, and be able to just understand yourself a little bit better. Uh, Mm -hmm. that is so important with the whole just with regards to self-esteem and um how you're how you think about others perceiving you and all that stuff that's so crazy i don't know if i've mentioned to you that my daughter is in that same place yeah you mentioned it you said just just very briefly once so i was actually interested in hearing more about that and i figured okay you know that actually tells me that i'm i should probably like mention this <laughs> when i talk to you because i think that it just fits somehow you know i've never like written about it in english anywhere mm. but like you know that's i think i'm like on the spectrum but isn't it kind of interesting when you think about it that that should i mean does that mean that this is still like a taboo or like, like there's some sort of shameful connection to that word. I've really been thinking about this a lot because I realized that I don't lead with this when I'm like meeting someone new or, or talking to someone new. I don't start off saying that mm-hmm. because I feel like it gives people uh, a certain idea, which is not necessarily going to be right at all because the whole being on the spectrum thing is so varied. Uh, you know, the totally. way I see it, the way I see it is just, it's just people who are not typical or, you know, but it doesn't mean that that you're like you have to be treated differently or, or mm-hmm. spoken. It doesn't change anything. It just you know it gives more of an idea about why maybe um, people are a little bit different from others. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to think if if maybe there's still sort of some sort of stigma attached to that that whole thing. I think that I mean I think that is actually the case, um, especially for adults. Uh, thankfully, it's changed so much. Like for kids, I mean it's. People are having their kids uh, diagnosed at a really early age. So, you know, the teachers work with that from from the time the kids start school. And so that is a completely different thing, you know, thankfully. But but I think it's really different for people who are just like coming to this realization, like after the age of 40, (laughs) which kind of Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very, very different. So I was so glad that they made this documentary. It was like so well made. And one of the main things that I was connecting I was like relating so much to that so many of these women talked about was their tendency to go into really bad relationships or have 
really bad relationship experiences. And hmm. uh, like most of them had been experienced uh, sexual assault of some form in some form or, or another, or had been, you know, like experienced gaslighting or emotional abuse. Um, hmm. It's like, it, it's like extremely common for women who happen to have this uh, particular trait. Uh, and that is definitely the case for me. I mean, that is like my whole, <laughs> my whole history uh, with men from, from start to finish is like just extremely weird, toxic stuff that has never worked out. There's, there's a lot of stuff there that that's really interesting to think about. That's really interesting because the, you know, relationships, I'm not uh, breaking any kind of new information here, but as they evolve and deepen over time and become, you know, go from learning to relate to someone, if you're using the word relationship there, and yeah. learning more about them, etc. And then they get to their deeper evolved state, which is potentially where more of that toxicity starts to arise or become deeper at that time, mm -hmm. it is interesting to think like if that is something that has any kind of common uh, situation for women that are um, either somewhere, however you want to say it, if they are somewhere on the spectrum, like what is the creation of that? Is it that these men are recognizing something that they see as a weakness that they are then plunging something into mm -hmm. because they're recognizing that or what I don't I know how you put I have actually um I have a theory about that I think part of it is uh, at least like for some for some people um this whole idea of like trying to assimilate trying to be more like um trying to make sure that people like you basically mm -hmm. um rather than just like fully embracing your weirdness and like in my case uh the last relationship I was in over time, like my, my, my spirit was kind of crushed basically. Um, and mm -hmm. the way that that happened gradually was that I kind of allowed it to happen because I, I was so happy to like, finally like have a boyfriend that seemed to be relatively, you know, decent. Mm -hmm. my, bar, my bar was very low <laughs> to begin with. And I, I just really feel like I like made this huge effort of trying to, um, uh, make make him like me more and more by becoming less and less like myself, hmm. which is weird because he obviously fell for me who I was at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just like this is this has been like my my reality so many times where I uh, I feel like I'm a bit of a chameleon um, depending on who I'm interacting with. I'm like I tend to like I can I tend to pick up accents after a short time if I'm like if I'm around Australians or British people or something like just for example. Uh, and I tend to just like kind of um, pick up on people's, uh, you know, traits and their humor and adjust myself accordingly. Maybe I think a little bit more than others might do. Um, and like in, in this case of like in romantic relationships, I have uh, somehow just uh, made at least, you know, I did at the time, I, I, I would not do this ever again, you know, but I spent many years just kind of uh, trying to get this guy to like me, you know, <laughs> just mm -hmm. putting it in a really blunt way um, because so much of my, like my, my temper and uh, 
I was like not allowed to be angry. I wasn't allowed to yell and I wasn't allowed to express my feelings. Um, so that just completely just, you end up just in like a shell and like a ghost of yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think people who are more, who have maybe always gone through life knowing who they are, you know, just like from the get go, they know who they are because they haven't been perceived as weird from like as, as far back as they can remember. I think people like that are, are far more like uh, less likely to suffer from low self-esteem and less likely to suffer from this crushing self-doubt that I, I have basically been um, struggling with for as long as I remember. Always like, um, you know, like one minute I feel like really confident about something and then constantly like almost instantly I'm like, but am I sure? Am I maybe just mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I, you know, it's just like always questioning myself. And, and, and um, so that has had a real like huge impact on how I have gone through life and how I have missed out on all sorts of opportunities for success, basically, because I've been like suffering from such low self-esteem. Uh, so for like for many, many, many years, different periods of my life. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it was actually in a way it was uh, comforting to hear other women, all of them. They were like so smart. These are all such smart women. Mm-hmm. And they just like ha- were so impressive with so many things that they were doing. But they all had this kind of in common, kind of losing themselves in relationships and ending up uh, abused in some way. Hmm. It made me feel less, you know, I, I, I didn't you know I, because I have spent time beating myself up for like, Oh, how could I be so stupid? How could I let this happen? And how could I let this person? I mean, it just, it just happens to so many people. It's so common and it's so easy to accidentally find yourself in that situation and not know how to turn it around and not know how to get out of it. You know? Yeah. Especially like when you are feeling still i mean whether the love is that pure at that moment or not you're in that relationship so you have those emotions that are tied to that mm-hmm. and you are being whatever percent of you that you're being so you're 20 percent you or 40 percent you or whatever not being fully you how do you like make that decision to oh i'm gonna i gotta ramp myself back up to a hundred when you're still feeling the security i'm doing air quotes of that relationship like that Uh, totally it makes sense why you wouldn't do that Uh, the way i see it uh became like really clear afterwards as every because many things you know tend to do Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like like okay it's only been uh 18 months since i um, escaped from this, uh, this rather like nightmarish, uh, scenario that my life had become. And so the, the memory is still very fresh from, from how I actually felt. Mm -hmm. But even though it's not been that long, I have changed so much or or maybe reverted to my natural state. (laughs) It was actually a better way of putting it because that's what my, like my sons, for instance, they have said to me like, like, wow, it's like you're back. It's like you're Mm -hmm. back to being the woman you were the mother we knew before you got into this relationship with this guy. And hearing that is just like really, really great to me because I, because that's how I feel. I feel like I've like obviously learned a ton of things that were, you know, many of them very difficult lessons, but 
it does it hasn't changed me. I, you know, now that I'm free to be myself again, I am back to just being myself and probably even a better version than before. But I still remember how it was, um, even though it feels like I'm like watching a movie about some other person. Mm-hmm. Those were actually my feelings and uh, my experiences. And it's, um, it's, it's almost scary to think about it and go back there and like reminisce about how insanely bad things had gotten. Um, and there are things like uh, that I've never written about on social media because they were like, I, I don't know, maybe felt like they would be too off putting or just like um, wasn't ready to talk about it. Or, I mean, I feel like I'm able to talk about it now. Um, like I had started uh, like self harming for the first time mm. in my life at the age of 40. Uh, mm. I had started like cutting myself. And that is something that is just bizarre to me to say out loud mm-hmm. because it's just not something, you know, even, even though I had, you know, I was, had been dealing with uh, depression and, and anxiety for, for such a long time. I had never resorted to that. Uh, so I had been like pushed so far out of like who I am somehow. And one of the things I've been like really interested in doing, um, uh, one of the first things I thought when I finally got out of this uh, mess and uh, kind of felt like I had my brain back and my, my, my freedom I, I thought to myself, I have to write about this. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to talk about this. I have to, the whole concept of gaslighting is, you know, it's fairly new in like, uh, just in general discussion. Uh, most people know what it means, but it's not like something that people have been talking about for 10 years. Yeah. And I was not familiar with the term until, uh, I realized I was basically in the middle of it. You know, that's what was happening to me. And it took me a long time to realize it and admit it to myself. Um, but it was like, uh, just like the worst case of gaslighting that you can experience. For one, because I had already been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder at one point. Hmm. Um, so I had kind of like this, uh, like, like I felt like I had been like given like this stamp, like that's you now. You're, you're a person with mm-hmm. BPD. And my, my doctor, he, he literally said to me at some point, yeah, doctors always kind of uh, borderline patients are kind of our least favorite to deal with because they're so difficult. You know, oh my like, God. Oh, great. great. Uh, and I spent like oh, so much energy just, like reading about it and like, oh yeah, this is definitely me. Yeah, this is me. Mm-hmm. Just, like this. So I had this whole idea that I had to fix myself and my my ex, he totally, you know, ran with that. You know, that gave him kind of really mm-hmm. good uh, way to like he he develops feelings for his coworker basically and uh, you know that was kind of the beginning of the end finally of our relationship it was like around October November 2018 when that kind of started and uh, this coworker I actually knew her um, because I was sometimes working with him he was like a sailboat captain hmm. uh, and she was like a guide like a runner like mountain runner guide and so they were working together in this, like it was a tourism company where, where they would take, you know, clients to go skiing or running um, in mm. like re- remote regions of Iceland and Greenland. And first when he got this job, I was like, yay, you know, he's not a fisherman anymore. Now I can. And he like invites me to come on the boat with him. And the first summer that he did it, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I 
but then, you know, he, she comes into the picture and, um, like I somehow didn't like her from day one, but it, I wasn't worried. You know, I had no reason to, um, didn't, I didn't like her for some reason. And, uh, mm-hmm. they spent two months together in Greenland. Uh, so I was at home for two months. Uh, there was no like phone connection most of the time. So I barely talked to him yes. for two months. And that's basically, I, I, I mean, the way I figured they most must've just fallen in love during that time. And, you know, I mean, it, it happens. That's just life. Uh, I'm not even going to judge that part. But, you know, he comes back and I'm like really happy to see him. And I'm like, hey, you know, uh, and, but like as soon as he got back, he was not the same. And I sensed it um, and I got really scared. I'm just going to admit that I was terrified that, oh, no, I cannot. This our relationship cannot end. You know, that can't mm-hmm. happen because it was just like it had been my reality for so long. And we had done a book together. That was like one of the main thoughts in my head. We had spent so much time doing this whole photo project together. And therefore, mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to break up because then I wouldn't be able to publish the book or or even look at the book, you know, which I had spent six years of my life working on. Uh, so I kind of used that as an excuse to keep it going, even though I was no longer happy uh, in the in any remote sense. I was just like I was miserable from November 2018 until May 2019, like completely miserable. And I sensed that there was something wrong. So I was being, you know, I was like kind of probably very annoying to him, like asking like, what's going on? Why aren't, why are you so distant? And, and I actually suspected another coworker of his, um, who was like completely innocent of the whole thing, uh, because, uh, the actual woman that he was, uh, developing feelings for, we were all drinking together one night, you know, because I, you know, she was like, friends with us and um she actually whispered in my ear at some point like aren't you worried about him and her like the other co-worker and I'm like no should I be and she's like well they're sure spending a lot of time together and like I'm like uh okay I I, I hadn't been worried and wow yeah you know it's like <laughs> she tells me this like really sneaky kind of underhanded way of getting this kind of idea smoke screen yeah so I hated I spent months hating this uh this this wonderful French woman who I'd actually been friends with and she'd always been so nice to me. And I, I just started hating her and she didn't know why. And it was like really unpleasant. And, but my ex, he focused on being really mad at me for being mean to this other woman, you know, it's like, why are you so mean to her? she hasn't done anything? And which was true. But at the same time that could like, uh, you know, I wasn't thinking about the, what was actually going on. And, uh, it was really uh, just like a really unpleasant period. And um, then finally in, in January, he um, he starts like uh, really ramping it up in his behavior. Uh, that's the first time he like he shoved me, uh, like, you know, just like grabbed me and shoved me and threw me, threw me out of the way because I was trying to get him to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time he like laid hands on me. Um, he'd never been like physically abusive. And uh, that was the point where I was just like, okay, now I feel like a line has been crossed. Mm-hmm. I am not okay with this. And I remember sitting down with my kids, um, and being like, guys, if I decide to leave him, are you, are you okay with that? And they were like, yes, <laughs> like really mm-hmm. just finally we can like say what we were actually been thinking because they had, they had been hating him for a long time. They saw, mm. saw the whole thing. They saw that he was treating me terribly. They weren't allowed to, they were like 18 and 19, 1920 around this time. So they just tried to just like detach themselves from the whole thing. And mm-hmm. but they hated watching the effect that he had been having on me. And they hated how I had been almost like they described it later. Like I, I was just like disappearing from, from them. Um, 
and they were scared for me. They were like literally scared for me that I would actually harm myself uh, in a serious mm -hmm. way. This is just something that I found out much, much later, just like very recently that they admitted that to me, um, which is a terrible thing to hear. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, so that was January. Um, I didn't leave, obviously, because the whole idea was just like impossible in my head. I, uh, at that point, I had really, um, really strayed really far from my dreams and my goals. I had kind of given up on photography. I had put all this focus on uh, being being a cook on a boat. You know, that was all of a sudden my hmm. my new identity because I wanted to didn't want to lose him, and I was working with him on this boat, and I was like, oh my. I, I, I didn't draw much and I just had lost completely all self-esteem. I did not want to take pictures of myself ever. I barely wanted to look in the mirror and um, I, I didn't have any friends. I didn't talk to anyone. I was never like having any discussions with anyone anywhere. I was like lost con connection with everyone. Um, so I was like super isolated living in this tiny, tiny town in rural Iceland, a uh, six hour drive away from my, all my family. And I didn't have any money. Uh, so I was financially dependent on him. We weren't married. I didn't have any stake in the house. You know, if mm -hmm. so I realized that this would not be easy. So the idea of the unknown, of uh, how I would figure out what to do, how I would pick up my life and start over again, it was too hard. It was like an impossible mountain to climb because I just didn't see it. And so I was complacent in this nightmare that was familiar to me, you know, uh, because at least I knew that I could always turn on Netflix and just kind of, you know, sit there and just be completely numb and not think about things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would just like spend hours just watching like, everything on Netflix. I think I finished Netflix at some point and I, just <laughs> knit. I was knitting, I was working on that and I did take landscape photos. I, I didn't completely stop doing this stuff, but I didn't have the passion for it. I felt like I was mm -hmm. no longer remotely the person that people had been like fans of at some point. Mm -hmm. I, I was just like, I didn't, I was like, people must've been crazy. I'm not, I'm not an interesting person. I'm just, you know, because I had become so sad. I was just like, um, uh, just had no belief in myself anymore. And, uh, I didn't realize what a dangerous situation it was for me, just for my mental health. Mm -hmm. And in February, there was like this really bad instance of him, like completely just losing patience with me and just screaming profanities at me and like calling me retarded and calling me insane oh and God. accusing me of being paranoid and crazy because he could always throw around the crazy thing because I had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, mostly because he was tr triggering all the uh, symptoms of that with his behavior, with the gaslighting and making me constantly doubt myself and everything. So um, I somehow just like kept going like through February. And then in March, uh, there was like a really just terrible, terrible, terrible evening that we had. And I've actually written about that. I'm not going to go into that in detail now, but I, I wrote about it like last year because it was so painful and it left me feeling just like that was a point where I was I realized that I would not be able to, go much longer with the situation. Mm. I, I knew that there was something going on. I wanted to know what it was. I just wasn't quite ready to just like literally just like take his phone and figure it out, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because part of me just wasn't ready to face that. And, um, and then uh, I was still working with him on the boat throughout March, April and May. And during those trips, he would 
he would basically put me on the spot in, a, in the sense that I was like, um, there was no internet or phone connection on these boats. We were like in these really remote areas. And uh, when the tourists, the clients were not on the boat, we were just alone, the two of us. And he would, he would literally like deliberately trigger panic attacks. Uh, you know, that happened just like just feeling completely lost. I just didn't know. I don't know if anyone, people who haven't experienced panic attacks probably don't know how this is, but it's just like this. It's worse than physical pain in many ways yeah. because it's so you can't, you can't do anything about it other than, you know, take meds to numb the feeling, but it doesn't help you feel better. So the only positive thing that came out of that experience of being stuck with him on these, you know, uh, being basically pressured into having panic attacks and crying and feeling completely distraught, but then having to pick myself up and put myself back together and make sure that the, the clients wouldn't notice, you know, when mm -hmm. they got back. And also I had to continue making all these meals for these people and playing the part of a happy hostess. It was a really, uh, really exquisite form of psychological torture. And the thing that kept me going was I decided to, to, to try jumping in the ocean like um, I had heard about cold therapy for, for depression and stuff and uh, nothing terrified me more probably than, than going in like this freezing water because mm. it was just like so far out of my comfort zone. But uh, I felt so bad emotionally that I was like, I'm ready to try that. You know, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to go in this water and just see what happens. And, and it was like, <laughs> it was so hard. But I instantly, it's like, it was almost like rebooting the system. That's what it does. Um, it just shocks you somehow into, uh, so, you know, I got this temporary relief from uh, feeling terrible and um, somehow got through these trips and somehow did not leave him until like uh, everything blew up. Um, it's like I had this moment where I just like, I completely blew up at him and I just had this meltdown and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. I was like the day after the last trip I went on with him because that particular trip was just like insanity. It was just like madness. It was like, I don't even know how I survived it. It was so, it was so unpleasant. Mm. And I got him to admit that, yeah, he, his, he had been kind of, you know, talking to this woman. They weren't, you know, sleeping together or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, right. But mm -hmm. I wanted to believe that. But, and then that's when I decided to just take his phone and just very briefly look at it. And like the first thing I saw was a message between the two of them. And I could just tell without even, scrolling that something had already happened between them and something had been going on for a while that was very obvious at that point i part of me was relieved because then i could be like mad at mad at him finally just like fully embrace being mad at him i mean part of me was terrified obviously because my my whole existence was about to change yeah and i had no idea what would happen and it was it was very scary All right, and that is the end of part one of my conversation with Rebecca. You just have to come back for the second half. That made the most sense to split it right there, but there is so much in the second half, and I'm so excited for the rest of our conversations. Like, I wish that this was one of those things. Oh, like the amazing Osiris podcast with Steve Soberman and David Crosby that's called Freak Flag Flying. Did you guys listen to that one? It's like a multi-piece, I think it was five, maybe more episodes, and they spent like a weekend together and had these conversations. I wish that I had that opportunity to spend multiple days of talking right at the same time, but we kind of laid the groundwork and said, 
that there is going to be more. And already there's going to be more because this is only part one of two. So make sure that you guys bookmark, earmark, dog ear, do whatever you need to do with an ear, with a mark, with a book, with a dog to make sure that you are coming back for part two because there's a lot of great stuff in there. But I will say right now, make sure you go on to Facebook and or Instagram and look up Rebecca, find her there, connect with her, look at all of her art. Oh, you can also go to daddyunscripted.com and look up like I will tell you guys to do for all of these. There's written posts that go along with all of my episodes, but this one's really special because it has a bunch of the photos taken by Rebecca. It has some of those sweaters that I was talking about earlier. It has different things that kind of point you and give you a little bit of visual aid because this is about a visual artist. So make sure you check out daddyunscripted.com for that. And then you can find me all over social media, Daddy Unscripted on Facebook, Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Instagram. You can drop me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. That's the best place to kind of directly email me there, or you can send me a direct message on Twitter. I think that would be a good place to, or Instagram. Not a big fan of Facebook. I'm not going to lie. I'm just not a big fan of it. So I do have that there, but you can also contact me through those other ways. Big thanks, as always, to Umphreys McGee for letting me have their music in these episodes. Check out umphreys.com to find out what they have in store for the new year. umphreys.com. And you guys, thanks so much for listening to this flagship first ever premiere episode of Who Tells Your Story a new series of the Daddy Unscripted podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for lots more. I hope to have a lot of really cool and different unique guests in this series as well for you guys to get inspired by. I am not just saying this. I am so and was so inspired by this conversation with Rebecca. It touched on so many things. I was telling her afterwards I could have talked so much longer. I was texting her afterwards how I was taking notes on things that we need to talk about later. So that will happen. But for now, keep an eye out for part two. That should be coming soon. So I hope you guys are all safe, continuing to be well, continue to love your friends, your family deeply, continue to show kindness to others. And I can't wait to have the second part of this episode out for you guys soon. Take care.